Welcome to the Ides of Macro, where we discuss investing, trading, and big picture frameworks, all through the lens of global macroeconomics. This is the bit where I remind you that none of this podcast is investment advice. In fact, this is purely for entertainment and educational purposes. But please do hit that subscribe button if you want the latest videos from Lycan as soon as they're available. And with that, let's get on with the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ides of Macro podcast, where we talk about everything to do with macro. And this week, I'm very excited to have on uh, Jesse Felder, who is founder of Felder Investment Research and has been a, a macro stalwart for many, many years. In fact, in the days when I used to do the publication platform at Real Vision, Real, the, the reports by Jesse were the ones that people really anticipated and looked for and were certainly some of the most popular that we had on our site. And we had over 50 contributors. So Jesse has someone who I have always respected, always loved reading his stuff when I've been able to get my hands on it. So welcome, Jesse. Thanks, Roger. Happy to be with you. And I think I'd love to really just get into it because, you know, here we are on the 4th of August. And we've just seen some quite interesting action in a yield, particularly those longer dated yields, 10-year yields, not quite broken to the highs yet, but they are starting to break out. And there's a lot of noise, at least on Twitter, about this. What do you think is happening here? What do you think is, firstly, the drivers of this? And do you think that this is an important um, change in the narrative compared to what we've really had over the last few months? Absolutely. I mean, I, I wrote a piece um, towards the end of June titled The Most Important Chart in the World, and I was referring to the weekly chart of the 10-year Treasury yield. Um, to me, from just a purely technical standpoint, it looks like since that October high, it's formed a bullish flag pattern, and it's broken out of that pattern higher. And a completed, you know, bullish flag pattern is is one of these kind of basic technical analysis things that that you can look at, and essentially, uh, you know, it yields a projection, a projected target right around five percent. So I think that you know people might be looking at this rise in yields and think, oh yeah, well maybe we'll we'll test that October high. Um, I, I think that there's a there's a, you know, a more important message there just from the technical side of it that uh, yields are probably headed on, on uh, you know to, to new highs for the move. And in this piece that I wrote, I featured some recent commentary from Ray Dalio and Bill Dudley, who have been warning about this for for quite some time, suggesting that that uh, you know the rapidly rising fiscal deficit is going to lead to a uh, just a, a surge in uh, supply of treasuries coming to the market and they're going to have to you know we're going to have to see higher yields um, as a result of that in fact bill dudley former head of the new york fed said he would be surprised if he if we didn't see turbulence quote unquote turbulence in the treasury market sometime this year so I mean, to me, those are very important signals, um, you know, technically, and then from, you know, some, some people who are very uh, intimately familiar with the workings of, uh, you know, treasury markets, all kind of suggesting that the risk is to the upside for yields. And, and that's what we're seeing materialize this week. And, and in terms of, um, you know, what's driving it, because obviously twin deficits is a story that's been around for months, years, you know, it's been building and building and building. But it feels like, Something is slightly different this time. You know, people are talking about, you know, this issuance um, up to 1.9 trillion over the next what six months or by the end of the year. Is it that? 
Is it positioning of, you know, asset managers in particular long? Because I know there's this speculative short, but a lot of that's against things like basis trades and other positioning. So it feels like there is a lot of length out there. There's issues around liquidity. You know, liquidity seems to have dried up a little bit. Or is it just people are worried about inflation and commodities starting to break out again with this you know, reasonable move that we've seen in WTI? What do you think is the big story behind this move on this occasion? Well, what we're seeing, and I, I haven't really seen many people talk about it, is a, a bear steepening in the yield curve, where the yield curve is steepening. But it's not, I mean, typically that happens when short-term rates come down faster than longer-term rates. And that's kind of what everybody's been used to seeing with the steepening of the yield curve. A bear steepener is when <clears throat> the yield curve steepens as a result of longer-term yields going up faster than shorter-term yields. That's what we've seen this week. And the traditional, you know, interpretation of that is the markets are worried about inflation, right? The bond market is worried that the Fed hasn't done enough. Um, and, and I think that's an important message to look at, especially if we continue to steepen as a result of longer term yields rising faster than short term yields. That, that would be a clear message that uh, the bond vigilantes are back, so to speak, and they're, they're, uh, they're, they're not going to soak up this, this supply um, until there are more signs that uh, inflation is going to be um, sustainably brought under control. And just um, for the people watching that, the, just sort of the, um, the background there is we got to minus 100 basis points, and most people are talking about two-year yields versus 10-year yields, and that was two-year yields because they're higher than 10-year yields by 100 basis points. We got to minus 100. I think we've got back as of this conversation about minus 75, so 25 basis points of 10-year yields moving up faster than those two-year yields. So that's the context that we've got here. And, and it does feel like there's this potential disconnect because is this one of those scenarios where the yields going higher themselves if they hit 5% destabilize the underlying fabric of the market, including equities? Or do you think that the move that we get in yields and maybe these worries about inflation mean that the Fed come out and say, you know what, we're actually nowhere near done in tightening yet because we've got to make sure we get on top of this? You know, I, th I think the Fed has been <clears throat> really clear that they're they're data dependent, right? They haven't said any. You know, I don't think Jay Powell has has suggested that they're ready to pause. I think he said that we're going to keep an eye on the data and uh, be open to further rate hikes. You know, the market has has heard that and priced in rate cuts. <laughs> you know, so there's been, there's this disconnect. And in fact, I read a piece in the Atlantic this week by Derek Thompson who suggested that what we're seeing now is, quote unquote, looks a lot like immaculate disinflation. Now, if you look, read, you know, research affiliates uh, six months ago, nine months ago, they suggested that just because due to the base effects, we were going to see disinflation in the first half of the year, just like we've seen just because inflation in 2022 rapidly rose into June and then peaked and rolled over. So the year-over-year compar comparisons through June were always going to be really difficult and make it appear that inflation was coming down no matter what kind of the month-on-month the, the -month trend was. But now we're at a point in time where those comparisons are going to start to get easier. And so if, in, if the kind of month-over-month -month trend in inflation just kind of maintains, we're going to see the year-over-year -year numbers start to, to go back up again. And as research affiliates pointed out, uh, you know, that disinflationary trend over the first six months of the year was probably an illusion. And this, you know, the, the inflationary kind of re-acceleration could be an illusion as well. 
But I think that what, what markets may be missing is the underlying trend of inflation is, has, hasn't changed, that it's still, um, it's still probably a, you know, well above the Fed's target. And you know, looking at things like wages you know, in today's uh, unemployment report and things suggest that um, you know, the labor market is still strong. There's still a shortage of workers in a lot of sectors that's putting pressure. I mean, we're seeing it with all of these um, uh, you know, uh, union negotiations and things, UPS and, and uh, the airline you know, workers, pilots unions and things like this are all negotiating huge price incre- or, uh, wage increases. Now, to me, that suggests that the Fed hasn't done near enough to, to rein in, in the inflationary impulses that are a lot, uh, you know, to being driven by, you know, demographic changes, shifts. The, you know, the, the, uh, the, I think the underlying trend of uh, inflation is, has a lot to do with just the, uh, pot, you know, um, the, the, the shift in demographics where you have a shrinking working age population relative to the overall uh, size of the population. And the great demographic reversal um, was a you know book that came out last year that really kind of uh, made it clear what's going on in the global economy in this respect, and that's something that I don't think enough people are paying attention to. So, you know, long story short, I think we've seen this illusion of disinflation, and now we're going to see it, it shift over the next six months. And uh, it's going to be. I think the bond market is already pricing that. The bond market is already saying, "Hey, look, the Fed hasn't done enough." And uh, that, you know, it, it, that should be a clear wake up call, I think, to equity investors that uh, rates aren't coming going to come down in the way that uh, they're discounting right now. I, I always say that, you know, what, what we've seen so far is this. Everyone talks about this pivot and the pivot's <clears> still there, but that pivot started in, in March of this year and it just gets pushed out. So it's actually been a plateau already, i.e., you know, people are just pushing the pivot, pushing the pivot, pushing the pivot. Eventually, it's like, well, that means that your actual expectations were for no real change. But then I think the other thing which is fascinating about this as well, which is you know, people are looking at core CPI, and yes, it might go a lot lower, but I get the feeling, you know, <laughs> given uh, the way that the Fed has reacted, is that even if core CPI managed to get to zero, even briefly, if you've got a strong equity market, if you've got revisions to GDP that's up, and if you've got employment that's tight, strong, under 4%, they're going to be thinking, yeah, that CPI is going to rebound. So surely they're, they're still, you know, they're still kind of priming the gun to tighten because the big story here is that everything's looking quite robust and the lagging, very, very lagging CPI data. Well, you know, we know that's going to rebound. I mean, base effects from oil are going to have an impact in a few months time. So do you think that do you think that the real driver here, if we're going to have any problems, is going to be from the back end yields going up? or the Fed actually being much, much more aggressive and therefore maybe 25, 25, 25, you know, maybe another 50 to 75 basis points? You know, I, I, I don't think the Fed is going to be able to be more aggressive. I, I think that they'll probably be able to hold rates where they are. Um, but I still think there's this issue of the lagged effects of the tightening that we've already seen have still yet to, to play out fully. And so I think we're going to see, you know, it's interesting what, when I look at, um, you know, how I, how I approach markets and looking at all these different things, I've seen, you know, the markets have come to fully discount, at least the equity market, the soft landing narrative. And I think we're going to, we're starting already with, with the action in the bond market, you're going to start to see that unwind and shift toward, back towards a stagflationary narrative. 
um, stagflationary uh, situation where, you know, you have nominal growth, GDP growth continuing to slow and, and uh, inflation turning back up again. And that obviously pinches real growth um, and <clears throat> is, is not good for corporate profits and, and those types of things. So I think <clears throat> it's possible that the Fed will be forced to pivot, but I don't think they'll be able to do it with, um, with the Fed funds rate. I think they're going to have to keep the Fed funds rate at least where it is for a prolonged period of time, as, as they've kind of communicated, where they might be forced to, to pivot, so to speak, is that if, if we do get this turbulence in the longer end of the yield curve, um, the Fed may be forced to kind of come in and unwind some of the, you know, I mean, they wouldn't want to call it quantitative easing because that would create even bigger problems for inflationary psychology. They'd call it something else. Um, but they may have to, you know, step into the to the bond market at some point, and so it brings up, you know, uh, interesting questions to ask. What you know, what does that mean for equities? What does that mean for you know, commodities and precious metals, etc.? And a lot of that's going to be down to um, obviously sequencing, and you know, sort of to encapsulate the last eighteen months. You know, we had a price shock at the beginning of last year, um, and in some ways, what we've had is little pockets of recessions, but not a a recession across the whole economy at the same time, probably because of we're still working through the dislocations of COVID. Um, but then we've obviously come out of that and we've had this window of, of growth. But I think uh, it's the, the thing that I thought was the most interesting, one of the most interesting charts, and I think you may have posted it as well, was the one from Deutsche Bank, which showed that of the last 13 recessions, um, the average span between the first rate hike and the recession was 19 months. We're currently at 16 months in, and only one of those 13 happened sooner Nearly all of them, if you had them on the equivalent trajectory, would be happening in the next six to 18 months. So again, based on the lagged effect of rate hikes, historically, 12 out of the last 13 recessions would still be you know, in the front windscreen rather than the rearview mirror. So it does feel like that's, you know, um, there's a lot of high-fiving, soft landing, but statistically, the recession would still be two, three months away at the earliest. So it feels that's the case. So sequencing-wise, and I guess this is where, where, you know, I'm trying to work out what causes what. Is it that we get the surge in um, yields, but a bit like in 2018 when we got to 3.25%, but maybe now it's 5%. Do you think it's the surge in yields that undermines what has been this kind of robust equity high-fiving scenario that we've seen? You know, yeah, the sequencing is the is the toughest part, right? I I, I I look at a lot of these leading indicators of recession and things, and, and uh, whether it's Fed funds or there's a composite that I look at of uh, oil prices, the dollar, and the tenure yield, essentially. And it has a, a, a really consistent two-year lead on the economic growth and, and corporate earnings. And so when you look back at uh, you know, the, the rapid rise in the oil price, the rapid rise in interest rates off their lows, what you know, Fed funds, uh, you know, changing uh, uh, Fed Fed funds rate from zero, and um, you know, all those things point to and have recession in the second half towards the end of this year, uh, second half towards the end of the year. Now it's funny that right, uh, we haven't even hit the kind of that that area, which really is over the next you know three, four, five months. Uh, before people have have already you know declared mission accomplished, <laughs> the Fed has pulled it off, uh, you know the soft landing scenario. So, 
you know, there's that side of it, which looks like we're entering in a period over the next, you know, several months where we should start to see these, the lagged effects of monetary tightening, of the rapid rise in interest rates and the dollar really start to hurt earnings and slow down the economy. But at the same time, we have this massive supply of treasuries coming to market and uh, inflation poised to pick back up again, um, just from a mathematical standpoint. And so it looks like, you know, those things could happen simultaneously, which is why I say, you know, this soft landing narrative might be evolving back towards a stagflationary narrative again. Um, and I think that, you know, is going to be reflected in, um, in prices of everything. Uh, you know, bond market, I think, is already starting to, to price that. Because for a lot of, you know, when we're looking at the investment sort of outlook, and when I look back at historical recessions, et cetera, I mean, one of the definitive things of recessions is obviously unemployment going up. Sometimes recessions come because there's high unemployment picking up, or sometimes you get job losses because you're in a recession. But the two are coincident at the very basic level. One doesn't go without the other. But at the same time, it feels like corporates are going to hoard um, their employees whilst equities are high. So it's kind of, you're not going to get unemployment picking up until equities come down. So therefore, what's going to bring equities down? It feels like actually then, therefore, it is yields, which might be the lead, the lead indicator. But I mean, you know, the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is what is the ring the bell number on yields? As I say, is it, is it that 5% or just do you think that just breaking the highs that we saw from a few months back, do you think that might start to make sentiment um, change? Because, you know, it's that feeling and you've written about this. Those tech stocks, people think are bulletproof now. They never are. But... It's got to that. Do you think it's going to be something like those yields that cause the tech stocks to roll over and then we start to get a bit of momentum on the downside? I think it's, yeah, I mean, absolutely yields, um, right? I mean, it, it makes no sense to me to pay 33 times earnings for Apple, whose earnings growth is actually in decline uh, when you have uh, a risk-free rate of 5%. Uh, it makes zero sense. But when you look at the you know, the Magnificent Seven, as they call them, uh, all together. Um, part of what, you know, is happening there is I think their profitability as a group is being squeezed. Um, and I'm, I'm talking about free cash flow margin. Um, and, and this is, you know, as a value investor, kind of something that I look at even more than, than you know, earnings and, and things. Because I think what's going on now is, is uh, this push towards AI. Right. I think this is coming because uh, and, and it was interesting to watch Microsoft kind of lead the way here because Microsoft was very clear that, uh, you know, they were going we were starting to head into a year ago. We were coming into a difficult, I think, two year period. I think Satya Nadella said the next couple of years are going to be really difficult. Um, whereas you have the unwinding, right? There was a huge boom in demand for all these tech products, everybody working from home during the pandemic. And it pulled forward a lot of demand for, for tech products and services that, you know, was started to unwind last year. And it's also for heading into recession that that makes that worse. So in, in some respects, it's very similar to that 2001-2 period where in the lead up to Y2K, there was an overspending um, on tech products and services. And that left a vacuum for a couple of years that really was catalyst for that, that bear market. But it was interesting that Nadella kind of came up, I think, with this AI. AI is not, not new, right? But he kind of decided to really go all in on AI 
right after saying we're going to have this difficult two-year period. So uh, to, to me, the way I'm, I'm kind of reading between the lines here is that companies um, with like focused in on these asset-like business models, whether it's software as a service or it's digital advertising, right? They, they've had it, you know, the asset-like business model has been wonderful. Terrific profitability and growth for a, a long period of time. But I think they're, re you know, through the, the pandemic, they've maybe reached uh, the maximum growth rate potential that they've seen and, and things are naturally decelerating because they've gotten so huge and because they've tapped many of the markets that, uh, you know, were untapped for so long. And so those the, 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 maybe the extent of these asset light business models has is, is nearing its, its uh, you know, end, end point. And now they're investing massively in an asset heavy business model, right? They're having to build these massive data centers and things, uh, which are hugely expensive to, to power these AI type of business models, which haven't even been proven to be nearly as profitable as their, their base businesses. So the way I read this is these companies are, are transitioning from asset light to something that's really asset intensive, capital intensive, and they're spending massively in CapEx. We saw this in Google and Microsoft. I mean, they're ramping up CapEx like crazy, which like I said, really pinches their free cash flow profitability. So right now, as a group, these Magnificent Seven stocks trade in aggregate more than 60 times their free cash flow. And this is a result of falling free cash flow and rising valuations, which I think sets up a really big um, problem for them if AI doesn't prove to be as profitable as their asset-like lines of business were, software as a service and things that where they didn't have to invest massively in them. Um, I, I think when you look at uh, you know the history of you know, these really capital intensive things, and especially in technology, right? Things are, uh, things become, technology becomes obsolete very rapidly, it needs to be upgraded um, on a regular basis. It seems to me that it's it's not nearly as an attractive a line of business as their, their main business lines have been. And for that reason, they probably, you know, should deserve a, an even lower multiple for the less profitable growth that they're now pursuing, but and things have gone the other way, so it sets up a an interesting um, situation where um, either you know AI will prove massively profitable and justify the valuations, or like most really capital intensive businesses, it will prove less profitable and deserving of lower valuations. And so I, I think you know that will take time to play out, but rising cost of capital and things and risk free interest rates. Are certainly aren't a tailwind to, to valuations at this point. And how do you think we get the market to move back into really caring about effectively fundamentals, you know, things like valuations, you know, your classic uh, metrics? Because, you know, one of the things we've seen over the last 10 years is the difficulty that active managers have had in the rise of passive. And when I mean passive, really, those rules-based funds. And I think now, you know, if you had a world which was 100% um, algo, quant, rules-based, where things like volatility and momentum mattered and valuation less so, actually, this could carry on until we see a break in the true economy and the money coming in from, let's say, 401ks starts to dry up. How do you think we get that, that actual switch so that when we go, these are overvalued companies, and it now matters that they're overvalued because it hasn't really mattered for a long time because the flows just keep coming in and keep coming in almost regardless of what's happening. Again, do you think that goes back to 
another move in the yields at the back end, maybe more interest rates, a bit more inflation. Is that the thing that's going to kind of ring the bell and, and shift us back into we care again? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. And I think, um, you know, you brought up the point of, you know, the Fed watches financial conditions and financial conditions are partly driven by stock prices and spreads and these types of things. And Jay Powell was asked about this at the last Fed meeting. Um, where, and, you know, financial conditions have actually loosened significantly, right, with the rise in stock, stock market and the narrowing in corporate spreads and things. And his answer was that, uh, yeah, you know, these things, you know, go in waves, but eventually we'll see, you know, financial conditions align with monetary policy over time. And so I think that was his, you know, lightly, thinly veiled way of saying yeah, we're going to remain tight until the market starts paying attention to valuations again, right? So that, that yeah, there can be, you know, market can rally for a time and spreads can narrow and all these things, but we're, we need financial conditions to tighten and we're going to do whatever it takes to see them tighten. And that's basically saying we're going to keep, you know, raising interest rates or keep them at a high enough level to see financial conditions um, tighten again, which is, you know, tell the stock market comes down, spreads start to widen and show signs that the that, uh, you know, the economy is kind of loosening up a little bit from this really tight, tight labor market. So I think that's probably the most likely way that we get through in the short run is Fed policy just remains tight until the stock market finally bends to its will. And with that, I mean, it's the, the sort of trying to think about the, um, again, it's the sort of sequencing, because what we keep on seeing is um, when we do get a move in yields and then other risk assets start to get a bit nervous, then yields come back down again. It always seems to have this sort of balancing mechanism. And it feels, and I guess this question will come back to you, um, if, is do you think that we get a recession that's a natural recession, i.e. we're just going to progress into it, you know, with that maybe another three or four months lag since that first rate hike? Or do you think we need to see one that's effectively manufactured either through yields or, or the Fed, because the battle that seems to be in the bond market at the moment is don't get you know, too short bonds because we're going to go into a recession, whereas it actually might be that it's only when we see those yields go higher that we'll actually then get into a recession. So do you think we get a natural one or do you think we still need the Fed to manufacture one? Yeah, I, I think that the Fed has probably already manufactured one. Um, and, you know, and that's basically like, like I said, the, the two year lead on oil prices, interest rates and the dollar is, is very strong leading indicator that point that the I mean, oil prices were negative, right? And actually, when you saw rates come down dramatically, oil prices crash and go negative. And uh, those those things basically set the stage for the really strong rally in economic growth and uh, earnings that we saw into early of last, you know, until about a little over a year ago. But now the, the, the rapid rebound in those, in those things has essentially, as my friend John Husband likes to say, a, a recession appears to be like baked in the cake already. We've already had these, these things happen, the rapid rise in interest rates, oil prices and, and uh, the dollar. And it's just now now playing out. So I, I think that probably they've already done enough. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the market, just like it does in 2007 and 2000, and 
in between every tightening and the onset of recession, you get this soft landing narrative. I mean, so many people have documented it so well that, you know, you get the tightening and then everybody looks around and goes, huh, wow, no recession. I guess, you know, it gets green light, all clear. Right before things, you know, plunge down into into recessionary episode. And I think a few people have pointed out the revisions to the un, uh, to unemployment numbers, to the jobs numbers, you know, we've seen six downward revisions in, in a row. That's only happened in, in you know, late 2007 before. So there are signs now in the jobs market, which is obviously a lagging indicator that, uh, you know, things are slowing enough to, to get to recession. Now, I think we need to differentiate. I, I don't expect uh, a 2008 style, you know, recession. Um, I think it's probably more along the lines of that 2001-2 type recession, or even look back to the 1970s and, and uh, you know, in, in that 73-74 recession, I don't think nominal GDP ever fell below 7% year-over-year growth, right? So how do you get a recession when nominal GDP is still growing 7%? Well, you get inflation going up to 8-9 to again, and you get, you know, a, an uptick in unemployment. Um, I think probably that 2001-2 episode, you know, was was not, we didn't have much of a recession. It was a very mild recession, but NASDAQ came down 90%, and, uh, you know, and, and we did have, you know, a technical recession. I think that's more along along those lines is, is what to expect here. I think people with, you know, due to recency bias or whatever think recession, and they think 2008, they think, you know, we ha everything has to crash all at once, including commodities and precious metals, and interest rates have to fall to the floor. And that's what recession looks like. That's not necessarily how, how it looks typically or, or how it's going to, to play out this time. And you made some really, you know, those comparisons there are really interesting because, um, and I guess the equity market is what a lot of people will think about. Do you think we're going to get a um, significant re-correction or correction? Because, you know, it's, it's great. We can all predict recession, but if equity markets just carry on up, what was the point? Do you think that this is a recession which, you know, like you said, 2000 um, to 2000 and effectively three was a 50% pullback on the S&P and 90% on the NASDAQ? But then we've had recessions like 1991 and the second recession in the early 80s, I think it was 82. And even, you know, they hardly pulled back at all. What do you think, you know, for the equity market, do you think that this is a broad, across the broad index level pullback of significance? Or do you think it's going to be those stocks will get whacked, those stocks won't, and therefore it's actually going to be a, quite a disperse reaction within the equity market? Yeah, well, the reason I think it's more like the 2001-2 time frame is that when you look back at that, NASDAQ was down 90, uh, small caps were essentially flat through that entire period. Now, I'm not necessarily bullish on small caps. I think something about, you know, people point to the cheaper valuations there, but something like 40% of the companies are unprofitable and, and so did, and the PEs exclude those companies. So, but I do think what's, what's kind of similar to that previous period was it was characteristic of a, a rotation out of technology and into commodities and precious metals, right? The, the oil price bottomed in 2001-2 and went on to just a, a spectacular 10-year move higher for oil and energy stocks. Same thing in precious metals. And it coincided with a major peak in the dollar uh, in 2001-2 
which uh, was an, you know, and rolling over of the dollar, which coincided with a with a change, an important change in the fiscal situation, where we had a you know, 99,000, we actually had a fiscal surplus briefly. Um, but then that structurally changed to where you had a, a widening, um, a trend of, uh, toward a widening deficit for, for years to come. And there was no coincidence that the dollar peaked at the same time and rolled over into a major bear market. So I think, you know, what we're, what we're in the midst of right now um, is that, that negative price on uh, print on the, the oil price uh, a couple of years ago was a very important bottom um, for commodities more broadly. Um, and ESG, you know, the popularity of ESG and all these things were, I think, a very important sentiment signal towards the commodities space, which has seen dramatic underinvestment for, for years now. Um, and if you just, uh, you know, subscribe to the idea of a capital cycle, we've had these companies, uh, you know, the resource sector has been dramatically starved of capital for years. And so we're significantly undersupplied at a time when demand is structurally going to be headed higher for a long time as a part of greening, you know, trying to green the economy and things. And so I think we are, you know, in the early innings of a commodity super cycle, very much like we were in 2001 and two. And uh, at the same time, that suggests uh, inflation is also, and interest rates have bottomed and are now in, in an important uptrend, which would suggest that, you know, valuations, record valuations of equities um, probably uh, lead to a, a significant period of underperformance. I mean, we saw the lost decade in the stock market from, two th from you know, 99, 2000 until the, uh, you know, early 2010s. Um, and I think that's probably, you know, what, what we're staring at uh, for, the, you know, the coming years is a rotation from financial assets to real assets. And, and so I, 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 that's kind of my, my thesis for the next several years. For, for people who, let's say, you know, long only, because there's a great, effectively, there's potentially a very good spread trade on there. But if we do get a, even, even a mild recession, we should probably expect, you know, headline indices to come down and even... You know, some of the commodity stocks will underperform in that. Um, would you say it's worth picking stuff up now? Or would you say, OK, let's, let's wait and see if we get this recession because we might get better prices? How would you play that? Because, you know, this great, great story is, is going to play out over the next decade. But, you know, people might get their stops hit if they go in now and even fall 10, 15 percent with tech down 50. So what's your way of playing that sort of potential outlook? The, the sentiment towards, um, you know, the oil and precious metals, I'll, I'll just ju address specifically, and, I mean, even copper and things, the sentiment got so negative recently because of the worries over recession. And when you look at how the oil price acts, everybody thinks, I don't want to buy energy stocks, I don't want to buy oil because we're headed to recession. Well, what oil does typically is it discounts recession in advance. And as soon as the recession starts, oil prices start going up again. Well, why is that? Because the oil price anticipates the fiscal and monetary response to recession, which, you know, and eventually creates greater demand and all these things. And so if you're just looking at the oil price <clears throat> from that standpoint, you could say that this year, the first six months of this year, the oil price has already discounted recession, right? It's down 50% from its highs uh, 20 to, in 2022, um, to me, that's oil discounting a recession. Now, it, what's interesting is since the you know start of July, 
oil price has gone from under $70 to now over $80 a barrel. So, you know, I, I think from that standpoint, you know, it wouldn't be crazy to suggest the oil price might be suggesting that recession has already started and that, uh, you know, we're going to start to see some, um, you know, some potential, uh, you know, inklings of, uh, you know, monetary and fiscal policy addressing the slowdown in the economy. Gold price, kind of the same thing. Look back at that 2018 uh, J. Powell, you know, the famous Powell pivot, right? Gold prices bottomed a good three, four months before that last rate hike, anticipating the end of the rate hike cycle. And then, um, you know, by the time Jay Powell was, you know, said we, we, they were done uh, months later, gold price was already already ripping to the upside. Um, and, and I think we've seen the same thing in gold, where you've seen, you know, the gold price uh, tanked, uh, you know, in September, October of, of last year. And if it's operating kind of on the same time frame as it did in 1819, then that would suggest that the, the gold price has effectively timed another end of the rate hike, rate hike cycle. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the Fed is, is probably done. Uh, they're not going to hike again. Um, that doesn't mean they're not going to hold interest rates where they are for a prolonged period of time until financial conditions behave the way they want them to. But I think that, you know, from the commodity sector, it's not outrageous to suggest that they maybe have already discounted recession. And now they're discounting, um, you know, the the, 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 you know, what are things going to look like 18 months from now? Well, you know, we could get massive stimulus. We could get, you know, these types of things again, especially heading into an election year. It's not outrageous to think there's good, if we have a recession going into an election, that there is going to be some kind of outrageous stimulus, <laughs> yeah. and which would be very bullish for commodities. And in fact, you know, that, I mean, that gold chart is a thing of beauty. And, you know, 20, 2050, 2075, and it's, it's close. It's great. And you are one of two people I saw mentioned getting quite excited because we had yields going up, but at the same time, the gold price was trying to go up as well. What are you thinking behind that? Because you're saying you were basically saying that you know, normally high yields is bad for gold, but actually gold going up and yields going up is maybe an anticipation of something. So maybe it's time to re-engage with that gold story. Can you just outline what you're thinking there? Yeah, I think there's, you know, um, there's a there's a risk, and I don't even know how to put a put a probability on it. But um, there's a I, there's a, a very good possibility that we see a uh, inflationary spiral, right? Um, where we're seeing the interest on the debt, the the federal debt, um, rise so rapidly, right? We're now at a, more than a trillion dollar um, annual rate just of interest. And, you know, if commodities take off again and the Fed has to raise rates higher, you know, we're going to see a lot of the debt, all the debt kind of reprice at higher rates. And we, it's, the federal government is still paying a relatively low rate of interest on, on the debt in aggregate because so much was issued at, at lower interest rates. I mean, if you reprice everything at higher rates, um, it becomes uh, extremely problematic where um, it, I think it becomes obvious you have to print money. Uh, in order to just pay interest on the debt, um, and so you know there there's a there's a a not uh, you know minuscule probability or possibility of uh, you know 
the Fed running into real problems with its inflation inflation fight, where they can't, you know, ideally, I think what the Fed would have done was been very, very aggressive in raising rates to begin with to really try and and nip inflation in the in, in, you know in the bud uh, and err on the side of hawkishness, um, which I, I, I don't think they've done. If you look at things like the Taylor rule, Taylor rule is suggested for a long time. The Fed funds should be closer to eight, nine percent, ten percent, right? We're still we're, we're at five now. Um, you know, so in that case, if they had been able to nip inflation in the bud, then they wouldn't have had to worry about these other potential problems. But now you're you're kind of entering a situation where if inf- the inflation genie is not effectively put back in the bottle and inflation picks up again and the Fed has to do more to fight it, um, it further erodes the fiscal position of the U.S. government, you know, causing causing bigger problems where then they have to issue even more debt just to kind of, uh, you know, pay the, pay the interest on the debt. And, you know, that puts the Fed in a very, very difficult position where I don't think they can pursue, you know, they're going to reach the point where they're not going to be able to pursue quantitative tightening anymore. Hmm. And the thing that I maybe worry about the most is when we get to that point, when the Fed has to end quantitative tightening, if the inflation genie is not back in the bottle, that inflation psychology could shift in a way where saying, well, the Fed's hands are tied. The Fed is, doesn't have the ability to rein in inflation, and that could be, you know, a, a really big problem. I think that's what what uh, Paul Volcker's biggest success really was, was, um, you know, breaking not just breaking back of inflation, but breaking the back of inflation psychology, right? Um, you know, by saying we're going to do whatever it takes to rein in inflation, um, and having the ability to do that because debt levels were relatively far lower back then than they are today really gave confidence, you know, people confidence in faith, faith in the Fed's, uh, you know, abilities. That faith, I think, is going to potentially come under question. And that's maybe the most dangerous kind of um, inflationary development that you could see. And do you think this, this is going to lead to some form of yield curve control appearing in the U.S.? Because if if we do get a... Um, disanchoring, whatever you call it, of, of inflation expectations, i.e. they start running away, yields start moving, yields, if they lose control of the long end of the curve, causes all sorts of untold tremors in other areas, maybe we have problems again with the banks, mortgages, another whack in the head on that, obviously, for those who actually want to move or buy the house. Do you think that they come in with yield curve control? And if they do, doesn't that potentially support you know, support the equity market in general, but also actually if you cap yields, doesn't that help some of the tech stocks? So do you think it's one of those things where, again, you get this sort of counterbalance almost is, is a potential that is constantly two steps that way, one step that way, three steps that way, two steps that way. And we never actually have the big kind of splurge or the big denouement that you want when you normally get that cathartic event in the equity market. Yeah, I, I think... Um we probably are headed towards some kind of yield curve control. Who knows if they'll they'll call it that? <laughs> but um, you know, the naming of these things seems important for psychology purposes. Uh, but but I think what will end up happening is you look at essentially over the last two three years, we've taken modern monetary theory as a, a thesis as a precept, and we've implemented it in the real world. We've said we can print as much money as we want. We can give it to people. Uh, and uh, it won't be a problem 
uh, you know, sustainably. But MMT also says that if if inflation results as a part of this, it's not a, it's not uh, up to the monetary authority to deal with it. It's up to the fiscal authority to deal with it. And I, I would absolutely agree with that, that, uh, you know, the Fed's, the Fed's hands are, are essentially, you know, they can only do so much um, to address this issue. When you have an 8% deficit to GDP, uh, which is equal to the worst of the financial crisis during a so-called, you know, economic expansion right now with unemployment at 3.5% or whatever it is, I mean, that's absolutely uh, insane um, fiscal policy, I think. And so, you know, we have, if inflation proves sustainably, you know, sustainable or is becoming a, you know, problem reaccelerating to the upside, the Fed will have to uh, implement yield curve control, but then it will be incumbent upon the fiscal authorities to say, we have to do what we have to do in order to address this problem. Also, we can't just leave it to the Fed and hope that they fix it. Um, and that probably means raising taxes. Well, what's the, the, the easiest you know, ta- uh, you know, the lowest hanging fruit in that regard, it's undo the Trump corporate tax cuts. So, you know, that's kind of what, you know, the, the prescription MMT gives us, right? We've pursued MMT. We've seen the inflation that everybody warned would result from MMT. And now we have to use the MMT prescription to, uh, to uh, you know, address the inflationary problem. And that's raising taxes in order to try and narrow the deficit uh, and and just kind of reduce the, the fiscal stimulus that's 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 going on right now. So uh, I think we probably get to that point where the the corporate tax cuts have to be reversed. And so yeah, while people might view uh, yield curve control as you know bullish for equities and in, in keeping down the, the the yields in the long end, I think we're going to see you know the Fed is not you know, going to be able to lower it at, on on the short end. Which keeps a lot of money on the sidelines in terms of, you know, I, I want to earn the 5%, but also there's going to be a, a, a have to be a shift on the fiscal side, which is probably even more bearish for corporate profits than, than anything else. And it's, you know, it's that sort of incredible um, tightrope that they're, they're on because, you know, the fiscal side of it was, and, and, you know, if you just go back, monetary during the last decade didn't really have much impact on inflation. It was only when you had the dislocations with COVID and the fiscal putting money in everybody's back pocket and if you give the average person money and they spend it that's the inflationary bit if you give rich people money they buy art and doesn't have that much impact on inflation (laughs) problem i guess we've got now is the it's you know employment and wages is where you get your sticky inflation and they're being given fiscal support so you need to set fiscal acts to the corporates to try and effectively get them to increase unemployment so it's kind of You've got to feed them, and you've got to take it away. And it's, it feels like that, that, though, is a, it's a multiple month, maybe even a multi-year process. So this feels like it's going to play out not in sort of like, oh, we're going to get one of those sharp sell-offs within the equity market, recession for two months, three months, well, two quarters, and then bounce back out. It actually has to play out over maybe 24 months or longer. Yeah, I mean, I again, you know, I, I hear you asking the sequencing question. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm trying to make money out of you. <laughs> It's the, it's the the most difficult question to answer. I mean, for me, it's I think a lot easier to just kind of see these trends playing out. And and uh, you know, you're you're absolutely right. 
you know, it was the fiscal uh, stimulus that really resulted in the inflation. And uh, with the deficit widening again, essentially that is, uh, you know, still at work in the market and probably going to lead to inflation coming, coming back again. Uh, I don't know how long, I mean, right now there's zero. Um, I mean, I guess there's, I think there's some Democrats in Congress that would love to undo the, the corporate tax cuts, but uh, most of them um, don't want to you know, vote for that, right? It, it's really difficult to vote for any, any um, you know, raising of taxes if you want to get reelected, which is why you know, both sides of the aisle, you know, nobody's talking about it. Nobody's worried about the deficit. You know, if anything, you hear uh, talk in, in Congress of, you know, well, people have been warning about the debt and the deficits for, for years and years, and it hasn't mattered. And so that sentiment of, of nobody cares is what's literally driving, um, you know, the, the, this problem to a level where everybody's going to have to care. Um, I don't know when, that, when, when we get to that point, but it feels like the bond market is starting to suggest that, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're approaching that point where you guys are going to have to care again. And so that's why I'm, I'm, I think I've said the 10-year Treasury yield, most important chart in the world. Because you would think that, you know, with, with uh, slowing in the economy, whatever, I mean, rates should be coming down. The bond market's not acting like it, like it should heading into recession. So, you know, uh, it's acting, uh, you know, as if there's another problem going on. And, and I think it's, uh, it's pointing, it's, it's saying inflation is, is a bigger problem than the potential for recession. That's something that everybody needs to pay attention. Politicians, you know, typically pay attention to to rates, but the fact that they're not means they ha might have to go up to a degree, um, you know, that that's going to uh, really scare some some um, uh, you know positive change into the into the mindset in Congress. In, in terms of the the way people can play this, and I'm thinking more sort of you know um, individual investors rather than institutions, because if I was an inst institution. I'd be looking at you know, a short-term trade on bond yields going higher. So if I was massively long, I'd want to reduce my position. Okay for institutions. Yes, there's things you can do in TLT, but relatively harder for retail. So it looks like maybe the accumulation in gold is, is a good way to play this because we're still below the big, big level of 2050, 2075. So we've not missed it. What we don't want to be doing is chasing it at 2100, 2150. So gold... Sounds like a, a good way of playing it. You like the rotation into, it sounds like you're probably more in favor of the energy sector first. And then do you think things like the, the miners, do you think start with energy? Because you, you say energy tends to have, we still use oil during the recession, even though some of the stocks get hit, but stay with that. Are there any other things that you're looking at as ways of just positioning? Because it seems like with the run that we've had, yes, people still have the fear of missing out on this big equity run, but we just want to be starting to cut back some risk, spreading it out a bit, maybe a little bit more cash than people have carried for a while, things like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, you know, you, you pretty much nailed it there. I think um, I'm very still very interested in, in the energy sector. Um, you know, these these stocks uh, are trading as if. Uh, oil prices are going back down, you know, below $70 a barrel sustainably. And I think that, uh, you know, the supply and demand, I mean, we just revised, uh, we just had the biggest weekly drop in, in supplies uh, on record and demand was just recently revised to record highs. <laughs> so the supply demand situation in oil is suggesting that uh, oil prices are not, you know, headed lower anytime soon. And even in the scenario of a mild recession, I think that the fact that uh, 
the supply situation here in the U.S. is is not nearly as bullish, I mean, you know, in terms of production, as a lot of people would believe. I think the you know my friends at Gehring and Rosenzweig have pointed out that the Permian Basin is the only place where there's any kind of growth in production left, and it's very near uh, peak production. Um, is starting to roll over. Um, so I, I think energy is, is still really interesting. The stocks are incredibly cheap. I mean, the, the, the free cash flow yield there is, is double digits. Whereas, you know, you have the free cash flow yield and things that have been popular, um, you know, is, is low single digits. Um, you know, I'm talking like, you know, 2% free cash flow yield, 3% for a lot of these, you know, big, big tech stocks. That's not attractive to me in an environment where I think, uh, you know, the risk-free rate is, is high and, and potentially going higher. Inflation is a problem. Um, and I, I think that you have to own some precious metals, um, uh, you know, as an insurance policy uh, against these types of inflationary dynamics that I've been talking about. Uh, it, it's fascinating to me that gold is very near to breaking out to, to new highs again. You know, we're at 1940-ish. Right now, just below record highs. To me, it looks like it's coiling, ready to, you know, getting ready to, to break higher. Uh, and there's, you hear zero talk about it, right? There's zero flows into ETFs. There's, there's zero news stories mentioning gold. To me, that's the most bullish sentiment signal that you could have. The last couple times gold prices tried to break above 2000, right? You had sentiment go through the roof. You saw it in the commitment of traders reports. You saw it in ETFs. You saw it in news articles. Now nobody's talking yeah. about it. To me, that, that suggests that this is potentially the time when gold price is going to finally break higher in a sustainable way. I mean, it's fascinating that you say that because I've been doing some work with, with um, people looking at things like junior miners, gold, etc., but also across the whole mining space. And not only the, the, these people saying the sentiment is the worst I've ever seen it in these stocks, but also when we've posted videos on this stuff, two or three years ago, if we did anything on gold or gold miners, it'd be like, yay, great, we love these. Now it's, this is ridiculous, we hate them, this is pointless, yes, we've heard this story before. It's a bit like uranium in 2017 when people were talking about that and it just carried on going sideways. So I've never seen um, the common section and general sentiments in, for instance, junior miners in every part of the mining space as awful as it is today. So it really backs up um, your point that this potential to actually have legs if we break is, is very much there, which I think is a reason to maybe start believing, certainly um, to start accumulating. One, one of the things just on, on this is that what you talked about there, you're talking about commodities, you're talking about um, you know, the dirty cyclicals, as I used to always call them. Now, for those people who are watching this, who maybe are international investors, do you think that if the Magnificent Seven are getting hit, and this is a story more for commodities. Do you think that for an international investor, you probably should be reducing U.S. weight and maybe looking at emerging markets or elsewhere? Because if the Magnificent Seven are coming down, then the headline entities are going to underperform because they're going to be giving back that outperformance of the last few years. So do you think for an international investor, if they're overweight significantly in the U.S. on their portfolio, that they maybe should be moving some into an international um, sort of space? Absolutely. I mean, just as a as a value investor, you know, U.S. market is so much more highly valued than any other you know markets around the world, with maybe the exception of of India. But uh, you know, typically, you know, other global equity markets are significantly cheaper, um, and 
I'm also bearish on the dollar longer term because of the trend in the U.S. fiscal situation. I mean, you look at just the trend of the, the price of the dollar and the trend in the deficit. And it's very clear they kind of move together over longer periods of time. So, you know, the, the budget office has suggested that the deficit is, is on an inexorable path wider, <laughs> right? To me, that suggests I don't want to be long dollars. I want to, you know, I want to own other things. And so I, I think from the standpoint of both, yes, the equity market is probably as overvalued as it's ever been. Um, and and the, the trend in the currency is probably not, um, you know, a good thing either. I, I would absolutely be uh, interested in, in owning other things and almost anything other than those two things. Fair enough. I mean, a lot of people actually said, you know, maybe the thing to, to look at is some of the emerging markets in the North American or at least in the Americas, because as we get all this sort of um, not so much, not so much deglobalization, but regionalization, some of the emerging markets that are going to be feeding into places like the US, which ultimately, you know, it's still probably going to be a relatively robust economy. Um, there are those opportunities. And you say a lot of people hate being explicitly short the dollar, but you can be implicitly short the dollar by being long some of these emerging markets. And if they're feeding into the US and the US holds up, even with the dollar coming down, then, yeah, I guess that's one way that they can play it as well. Um, brilliant. I mean, thank you for that. I mean, what's good about this is it's actually a sort of, you know, I, I, so many times I hear this really negative view and, oh, God, the world's going to end and get your hard hats on. But actually, it's, it's actually a nice rational kind of relatively, OK, that's probably going to underperform. That might outperform. It's not going to be a terrible recession. It's not 2008. But we've just got to be wary. And it just seems like the thing that we all should have right on our radar screen, front and center for now, is stare endlessly at the 10-year yield and see how far <laughs> that's going and how quickly that's yeah. going because that, that could be the, 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 the light paper for something a little bit more dramatic. I mean, just simplify it, right? This, the simplest form of technical analysis have bullish flag patterns in 10-year yield, gold price, and the oil price, all on different time frames. But they're all pointing, pointing higher. To me, that's maybe all you need to know. It's good enough. Three things that keep it simple as well. Simple trading is often the best trading and everyone can focus on it. Jesse, thank you very much for your time. Brilliant as always. Love speaking to you. Hopefully we'll get a chance to do this again and see how this evolves, you know, in a few months time down the road. But thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you, Roger. I really enjoyed that.